Good morning. Let me just tell y'all, I love this church, and uh, it's a privilege to be here with my church family, and I don't think I ever took it for granted that what Jason does every week, but having to prepare and do this for y'all today, uh, for the glory of God alone, I think I have a new appreciation for what it means to stand here before you. And, and Jason's off with his family getting some much, much, much needed rest and relaxation, and I think I can appreciate the need for the rest and relaxation much more today than I did before I agreed to do this. So um, I'm thankful for all he does, and please remember him and his family in your prayers. Uh, let me begin by humbly asking for grace. This is the first time that I've ever preached before you. Um, this is the first time that I've ever preached before any other human being. Um, <laughs> So please be gracious to me. Let me pray for us before we start. God, we just come to you this morning, and I am so humbled and thankful for this church body that you've called together. Um, I believe, I believe that no one is here by accident and that your mighty hand is working in all of our lives, Lord. I thank you for this group that's gathered. Um, I have been blessed by it. Um, I pray that as I'm opening your word for us, Lord, that you alone would be glorified. I pray that we would get a clear picture of you through these texts, Lord, and I pray that we would see that you are holy, 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 and I pray that we would see ourselves for how we really are, Father. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is truth and we can believe it, and I pray that your Holy Spirit would be active as we're opening it this morning. And just pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, our passage is going to come from Isaiah 6. I'm going to read that for us, and then we'll kick it off. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Let me set the stage a little bit for us. Isaiah was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, one of the major prophets of Israel and Judah. Uh, he was initially born into a very well-educated household. He was one of the royal households of, um, of Israel. So he grew up his early years within the palace. He had access to kings and royalty. Um, he was not living um, as a poor man in the desert, if you will. He functioned as a prophet for 40 years, and that time included multiple kings. Uh, as mentioned this morning, King Uzziah 
was the first, but he also functioned as a prophet under the reigns of King Jotham, the son of Uzziah, King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, and King Manasseh. All of these were kings of Judah in the south. As a whole, um, prophets were not respected very much in the Old Testament. They were not thought of highly. I think today we probably think of prophets as having this esteemed role, but that's not the way it was. Acts 7.52 tells us, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So Isaiah was not treated well as a prophet. He During his time as a prophet, Israel in the north went into captivity, and Judah in the south remained. And this is where he spent most of his time in his ministry. Um, Israeli tradition tells us, and this is not anywhere in Scripture that I could find, but the Israeli tradition tells us that he was actually sawn in half during the reign of King Manasseh, one of the kings of Judah. Um, It's possible that this is referenced in Hebrews. We recently finished a focus class series on faith, uh, going through the heroes of the faith in Hebrews, and there's this long list of other people who were called as being faithful, um, and the prophets is listed there. I want to read two verses out of there for you. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. So this was the life of Isaiah. This was the glorious life that he lived. Um, He left his time in the palace and went on to be sawn in half, mistreated, destitute. Why would he do that? Why does that happen to someone? And this passage this morning tells us the call of Isaiah. If, If your Bible has headings, it may say the commissioning of Isaiah, how he was sent off into a life of service. Isaiah, after this call, he was faithful. He wrote many prophecies. If you actually look at the rest of his book, he recorded many of the prophecies that we know so well that describe the coming of the future king. For example, this is one that we tend to read at Christmas time, but Isaiah 9, 6 tells us, "'For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor.'" mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are the words of Isaiah, the Isaiah that we're going to read about, and we'll find out exactly why he gave up his time in the palace to live this life. So let's get straight into it. Isaiah 6.1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of the robe filled the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I think we don't have a frame of reference for what this would have looked like for the nation of Israel or Judah. Uh, You know, in our country, we have presidential elections. Uh, They happen every four years, and we get a new leader at least once every eight years. And I just want you all to think about what happens in this country during these presidential elections. I think it's safe to say that collectively, we lose our minds, okay? Um, Regardless of your political persuasion or where you land on politics, I think both sides can say, we can say that people absolutely lose any touch with reality. I remember when I was a kid um, growing up in Philadelphia, we used to have Romanian get-togethers. I don't know if any of y'all have had the privilege of going to a Romanian get-together. 
I strongly suggest it. There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of noise. There's usually some singing in both English and Romanian. Um, there's a lot of alcohol, um, which makes the singing louder. Um, and I remember distinctly some of these holiday get-togethers that we had two groups of uncles that were of opposite political persuasions, one very, very conservative and vocal, the other one very, very liberal and equally vocal, um, and they would have conversations about politics. And I remember one of these conversations very clearly. It was around a presidential election, and it, they, they started talking. It was calm enough for about four seconds. Um, then they got louder, and as they got louder, the Romanian accent got stronger and stronger and stronger. Eventually, they just gave up completely on, on English and just went full out to Romanian, and they were screaming back and forth, and, and I didn't know what was happening. Um, I didn't want to vote at all after that, I can tell you. So, um, and that's for something that happens every four years. Uzziah reigned for 52 years. I want you all to think about 52 years, the only leader that they knew was King Uzziah. If we look at our country, let's go back 52 years. We're talking about President Trump, President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, President Bush Sr., President Reagan, President Carter, President Ford, President Nixon, and President Lyndon B. Johnson. That's 52 years of American history. And in Israel, there was one king and one king alone. So think about the turmoil that was happening during this time. There is now a new leader that's coming into place. I'd like to take a look at the life of Uzziah so we can kind of know the reign that was ending. Um, he, was, uh, he became king at the age of 16. As mentioned, he reigned for 52 years, which is a long time for us, but it was a long time for Israel as well. Most of the kings did not reign that long. Um, he's remembered overall as a good king, and there were also some major shortcomings in his life. The whole story can be found in Second Chronicles. I want to highlight just a few sections. Second Chronicles 26, verse 4 Speaking of King Uzziah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Goes on to talk about some of the things he accomplished, some of his achievements, some of the uh, uh, military achievements. But then we get to verse 16. I don't know how much time there was between verses 4 and verse 16. I don't know how much time there was between verse 16 and his death. But we read verse 16 where it says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. He had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out in his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, 
And being a leper, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So, that brings us to Isaiah's vision. As you can imagine, there was a lot of uncertainty. The king is dead. Even though he may not have been as visible in those last few years, there are new leadership coming. Jotham is now fully in control without the instruction and figurehead of his father. This is when we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The word that's used there for Lord is the word Adonai, which means ruler or king. It's more of a title. It literally means sovereign one. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the sovereign one sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This makes a very clear contrast between Uzziah and the king on the throne. King Uzziah was gone. He's dead. He's no longer reigning. His reign is over, but the Lord is seated on the throne, and He is sovereign, and His reign will continue. We know that this Lord on the throne is none other than King Jesus. Above, Continuing in Isaiah, it says, "...above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet." And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If you remember last week, we encountered a very similar scene in the throne room in Revelation. John recorded that scene, and we looked at it at the end of Advent. We looked at the fact that he is worthy. And part of the reason we know he is worthy is because he reigns on the thrones. I want to remind you all of what we read last week. In Revelation 4, 8, it says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These two passages are the only place in Scripture where we have this repetition of the word holy. The only place where we read holy, holy, holy. In fact, it's the only place that God is given attributes that are repeated three times. I would like to take some time looking at the significance of these words. You know, in English, if if I want to place emphasis on something, if I want to have you all understand more the, the meaning and importance of what I'm saying, we can do that a lot of different ways. We can use exclamation points. Um, we can throw around one, two, four, seven. You can throw however many exclamation points you want on a sentence. We can use all caps. You've all gotten emails that are in all caps. Um, you know, if it's used properly, it'll bring attention to one section. Uh, we can use adjectives. We could say incredibly holy, um, unbelievably holy. We can even string adjectives, adjectives together. Um, I know for a fact that our kids are very talented. They can express emphasis in ways that we cannot understand with a string of emojis and faces and smiley faces, and I don't even know what it means, but there's emphasis there, I can tell you. In, in Hebrew, um, emphasis was added by the repetition. So if you wanted to bring attention to something that you were saying, 
you wouldn't use grammar, you wouldn't use punctuation, you would repeat it. And the more times you repeated it, the more important it was. So when we read holy, 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 Scripture is screaming out to us, this is a big deal. Pay attention to this part, because not only is God holy, not only is He holy, holy, but our God is holy, holy, holy. Oh. Let, us, let us understand that holiness is the essence of of who God is. And in this moment, in this moment that Isaiah is peeking into the throne room of heaven, he gets it. He completely realizes that he is standing before a holy God. So what is holiness? I think that if you were asked to define it, I think many of us, at least now or at some point in our lives, would have started with the definition of purity that holiness is being pure or sinless. And, and um, I think that's true. That, that's not wrong, but I don't think it encapsulates all of what holy is. The word holy actually comes from the Hebrew word kadash, which actually means to cut apart or to be a cut apart or to be totally separate. The secondary meaning that's in the word is, is other or different or unlike. In other words, God is not a superhuman. God is not the greatest possible being that we can imagine. God is not the, the, the greatest and most mighty and magnificent thing that we can conjure in our mind. He is completely and utterly divine. He is completely and utterly different and other than we are. If, if all of creation were to cease to exist, if the sun were to stop shining and the earth were to stop spinning and everything around us would not just die but completely cease to exist, our God would still reign supreme on His throne because He is completely other and separate than us. We need to see that as we're reading these words. It's screaming out to us, holy, holy, holy is God and He is not like us. Later on in Isaiah, the same prophet, uh, probably influenced by what he had seen, writes the following, "'Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me.'" So purity is not excluded from holiness, but rather contained within it. God is pure because He is holy." A.W. Tozer has the best definition of holiness that I could find. I'd like to share this with you. He said, God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. The other thing it's important to remember is that this holiness is the starting place of all of his other attributes. If we're talking about our God, it all starts with holiness. Tony Evans has said, God's holiness is the centerpiece of his character. All of his other attributes flow from it. We talked about a little bit of that this morning. His wrath against sin is a holy wrath. His sovereignty over the universe 
is a holy sovereignty. His love for the world, then, is a holy love. If God is anything, He is holy. Moses mentions this in his song in Exodus when he says, "'Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders?'" So this holiness is something that we have a hard time even understanding. I have a hard time describing it because our human minds, my mouth, your ears, our brains, it's foreign to us. We have no concept of it. But we can clearly see what happens when a human comes face to face with the holy God. So let's see what happens. Isaiah 6, 4, and 5, "...the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called." And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Y'all think about this reaction of Isaiah. He sees God as holy, and he sees himself in a new light. Woe is me, woe is me. This phrase has the connotation of being cursed. The New Living Translation says, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people of filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. The King James, oh, I love the King James. The King James says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Is there not a better phrase for what should happen to us in the presence of a holy God than being undone? The Hebrew word there is demah. It primarily means to cease, to come to one's end, cut off, undone, doomed to die. This was Isaiah's response to the vision of the holy Holy, holy, holy God. Interestingly, Isaiah's response is not unique. We see the same thing when other people come face to face with the same God. R.C. Sproul in his classic book, The Holiness of God, says this, The holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. Isaiah caught one sudden glimpse of a holy God, and in a single moment his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed, made naked, or as Jason likes to say, made naked. (laughs) I think it's supposed to be naked, just for the record. Made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. The instant that he measured... The instant that he measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed, morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. Let's take a look at some of the other encounters that people have had with this God and how they reacted. We talked about the Apostle John in Revelation. He saw the same throne room, and he saw the same seraphim uttering the same words, when he came face to face with Jesus in Revelation 1.17, he said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This was the same John that walked the earth with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He ate the, multipl- the multiplying fish. 
He saw him resurrected. He saw the works of his Holy Spirit. But when he comes face to face with a glorified Jesus, he said, I fell at his feet as though dead. Let's remember Job. Job suffered in ways that we can't even imagine. He lost everything, everything he had, his wealth, his family. He had painful medical conditions. Um, He had a group of friends that came to comfort him and try to tell him it's going to be okay. His wife was not nearly as helpful. She tells him to curse God and die. Um, His friends, I'm not going to make a joke, I promise. His friends tell him that he must have some type of underlying sin in his life that caused all of this. And how does Job respond to his friends? He responds by saying, I am righteous. Job 20, in Job 27, he says, Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. But a few short chapters later, he has an encounter with God. And looking back, he sees himself completely different. Let's look at his words In Job 42, he said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So he goes from a man who's holding up his righteousness and saying, look, I have done well. I will not give up my righteousness from all of my days to a man who says, I repent in dust and ashes. In our elder reading this morning, We read about Simon Peter. Simon Peter was a fisherman. He knew fish. He knew fishing. And when he came face to face and realized that this Jesus was the creator of the fish in the sea, he said, he he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. If you go back to Isaiah, the, the, the fact that other people are also sinful doesn't make him feel any better. Isaiah says, you know, everyone else around me is sinful, and he doesn't take that and say, so it must be okay. That crushes him even more. You know, a few months ago, um, I was, we were late to my daughter's basketball game, and I did what all of us do when we're late. I was speeding. Um, To be fair, I do that when I'm not late. But uh, I was, well, I was speeding, speeding, speeding. And uh, I got a ticket, got pulled over, and uh, went to the courthouse about a month ago to pay my ticket, and they were kind of going through what the options are, and, and I know this has not happened to anybody else, but um, they said there's three options. You could either plead not guilty and contest it, go to court and say, this is why I'm not guilty. You could plead no contest, which basically means that you're going to pay your fine, do whatever is required by the court, but not admit, not admit any guilt or any innocence. Or I could just plead guilty and settle it. Uh, Faced with the holy, holy, holy God, Isaiah really has the same three options. He could stand up and say, not guilty, and reject this holy God. He could plead no contest. He could look around him and say, you know, I'm no different than anybody else. I'm not. All these other people, they're just like me. Or, Or he could stand up and either stand or kneel or whatever you do, or whatever he was doing when he uttered those words and say, I am guilty before this God. Octavius Winslow said, Beloved, let this truth be ever present to your mind, that as we increasingly see the glory in Christ, 
we shall increasingly see that there is no glory in ourselves. Jesus is the Son which revealed the pollutions and defilements which are within us. Look at the willingness with which Isaiah falls down and accepts his condition. The difference between himself and the Lord on the throne. There's no arguing. There's no justifying. Um, he's not Moses in the desert who says, but, but a few more, but a few more. He just falls down broken. Andrew Murray once prayed, Lord, I gladly accept this arrangement. I am nothing. You are all. My nothingness is my highest blessing because, catch this, my nothingness is my highest blessing because you are the vine which gives and works all. So be it, Lord. How how seriously do we take this holiness? How seriously do we stand before God and see Him as holy like this? Is this holiness the forefront of our thoughts as we live life each day? Do we, do we see this holiness when we're preparing to come Sunday mornings and worship this God? Do we respond in this broken and fallen and crushed way? The examples that we've looked at in Scripture this morning tell us how people have responded to the presence of, of our God. Do we respond the same way? The seraphim even though they were sinless, covered their eyes because they could not look upon the Lord. They covered their feet because they knew that as sinless created beings, they were unworthy. As believers, we now have full access to this throne room of God through the blood of Christ. But do we enter it flippantly? Do we enter it without a thought of who this God is? When we come into worship, do we see ourselves as broken? Do we see God as completely other, completely different? Do we acknowledge that when we are worshiping a holy God, we are standing on holy ground, and there is no one like this God? These verses are are calling out to us to respond to God in this way. Do we see God like this, church? Is this how we come to Him? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Have we seen this God? If we have, how do we respond? Isaiah responded like this, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Job said, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The Apostle John, when he saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. And we could go on and on and on. Vernon McGee said the following, If we would see him today in that high and lifted up position, we would be delivered from low living. It would also deliver some folk from this easy familiarity that they seem to have with Jesus. 
My friend, you cannot rush into the presence of God. He does not permit it. You come to the Father through Christ. This is the only way He can be approached. You can never come to the presence of the Father because of who you are, who I am. You come into His presence because you are in Christ. The Lord Jesus made that very clear when He said, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you are His child, you can come with boldness to the throne of grace, but you cannot come on to Him any other way. So what happened next? Isaiah 6, verse 6 says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What just happened to Isaiah? What, what just happened it says, it says Isaiah's guilt is taken away, his sin is atoned for. Does this wording sound familiar? 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, how tragic it would be to be Isaiah sitting there at the feet of this holy, holy, holy God and there be no altar there were no altar with which to have atonement made, we would be nothing but crushed. But this, this is the good news, that God has provided an altar for us so that we, when we are laying there broken and undone, doomed to die, there is a remedy for us. So, what happened? What happened to Isaiah? He found himself in the throne room of Christ. He saw the glory of God. He understood the magnitude of this holiness, and he was immediately struck with his unworthiness and the unworthiness of everyone around him. He was made clean, and his unworthiness was atoned for. I think, in gospel terms, it's safe to say that he repented and believed. Then we land on verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. As a result of this repentance and belief, you could say that Isaiah's life was never the same again. He springs into action into the service of our king. And he leaves the palace. He leaves his life of wealth to live his life as a prophet, to be sawn in half at the end of his days. Does salvation have to happen in an instant like this? Do we have to have an Isaiah moment? I don't necessarily think so. I think for some people it can be kind of gradual. It can, it can happen over time. There can be a process where we come to this realization. But like Isaiah, for you to be a believer, you must know that God is holy, holy, holy. You must know that you are not, or better yet, that we are not, not, not. We are unworthy, we are unclean, we are filthy. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Like Job, you go from seeing yourself as righteous to seeing yourself as worthless. You must know that God alone can bridge that gap and make us anything else than what we are. And when this happens, life is never the same. You will jump willingly into a life of service of this holy, holy holy king, the king who is reigning on the throne long after King Uzziah has died. 
that king still reigns. Believers, believers, what do we do with this passage? I would challenge you a couple things. We need to remember the holiness of the God that we serve. This should stir us to see the seriousness of coming into the presence of our Lord. We should be holding each other accountable to how we respond to this holiness daily. We should be challenged in front of this holiness to never be complacent about serving this God. Never again should we sing the songs that we've sung this morning, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and not see the picture of this king on the throne. If you have never had this realization, if you are not a believer, this text is screaming the gospel out to you. If you realize today for the first time that you don't measure up before this king of kings and you are completely undone about your sin, the Bible says there is one remedy alone, repent and believe. There's no magic words I promise I'm not going to make you raise your hand with everybody's eyes closed. This will not be a youth conference. There's no cards to fill out. You come before a holy God, you repent, and you believe, and by the power of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross, you will be made new, and you will be cloaked with His righteousness. If you have any questions about this, any of our elders would be glad to talk to you about it. Brother Keith, if you will come and lead us in a song, then I'll return and we can close with a benediction.